And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. This week Israel is celebrating its 75th anniversary. Uh, It's based on the date of the Hebrew calendar when the country's founders signed its Declaration of Independence, establishing the Jewish state back in uh, 1948. Uh, Again, the United States very quickly moved to recognize uh, the state of Israel. And it's common to hear people say that Catholic teaching doesn't really have anything to say about the modern state of Israel or the, the land, right? And at the same time, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, when asked about the land, says that if the land is important to the Jewish people, it's important to us. So there's no, it seems to me there's no easy way to write off the land, especially when you consider the role that it plays in the history of Israel. Well, with me right now to help us understand better how uh, the church itself is developing its teaching in this area, we've got Dr. Andre Villeneuve. He's Associate Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. He received his doctorate from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in 2013, writing his dissertation on the topic of nuptial symbolism in the New Testament and in ancient Jewish writings. His main areas of interest include study of sacred scripture, the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, leading pilgrimages to the Holy Land, and fostering the reconciliation of Israel and the Church through his work at Catholics for Israel. And you can learn more at catholicsforisrael.com. Andre, good to have you back here. Thanks. Hi, Al. Thanks for having me. Well, let's let's talk about this, because uh, just speak to my experience here. When I returned to the Catholic faith, um, I ha- I was given the impression that the Catholic Church has no uh, settled teaching on the Israel and the land, and um, that, in fact, we shouldn't really think too much about it, because the modern state of Israel doesn't correspond uh, to the promises that were offered to Israel in the Old Testament. So, let me ask you, what does the Catholic Church presently teach about Israel and the land? And we'll have a lot of time to go over this, but where do we begin? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I wish I had a, an easier, short answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the truth is that it's rather complex. So we've seen the development of the Catholic theology on, well, first with the Jewish people, because it's not just about the land, but it's a right. theology of the covenant with the Jewish people. And we know that been there has been a serious vacuum through church history since the time of the church fathers that was rooted in supersessionism or replacement theology, mm-hmm. claiming that the church had entirely replaced Israel as God's chosen people. Um, kind of a misreading of some of the passages of Scripture of the mm-hmm. New Testament. But if you go back to St. Paul in Romans 9-11, to Paul is very clear that he says, even though the Jewish people by and large have not accepted the gospel, God has not rejected his people. In fact, his gifts and calling to them are irrevocable. Yeah. So St. Paul and divine revelation in Scripture certainly affirm God's gift and calling in his covenant with the Jewish people. And so if you add the math to that, what is at the heart of the covenant between God and the Jewish people is the land of Israel. That's the, the scriptural foundation. As far as what the church teaches, it's why is it complex? Because first there's been kind of a, a type of disregard or um, setting aside of this teaching because the church has very much wanted to affirm the, the truth of, uh, of the Catholic faith. 
And so sometimes it's been portrayed as basically two religions in competition. And it's true that there is a competition of truth claims in, in terms of the person of the Messiah. But since really the Holocaust and the foundation of the state of Israel, of course, the events of history have just shaken Catholic theology. It's like, what does the church do with the, the birth of a modern state of Israel that mm-hmm. claims to be in continuity yeah. with uh, biblical Israel? And so we've seen the church take baby steps, beginning with Nostra Aetate in Vatican II, which reaffirms the gifts and calling of God to the Jewish people, but does not say anything about the land. And then it's basically spoken a little bit more clearly in follow-up documents, like in in 1973 and 1985, every document that the church publishes on the Jewish people. It's making timid steps to recognize there is an inalienable connection between the Jewish people and the land of Israel. But there's also a political issue, which makes it a very sensitive topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the church going to jump into political questions, the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians? And so that's this fine line to walk on between theology of covenants and modern Middle Eastern politics. Yeah, yeah. Now, in uh, Nostra Aetate, uh, actually, they quote from St. Paul. Uh, yeah. God holds the Jews most dear for the sake of their fathers. He does not repent of the gifts he makes or of the calls he issues. Um, right. I mean, that that opens up a whole area because uh, the most promise, the, the greatest promise to ancient Israel was the promise of the land. Yes. Yeah, indeed. And so what you quoted here is basically a paraphrase of St. Paul that Nostraitate takes quite uh, quite literally. So I think a certain discomfort that we've seen in Catholic theology, and I think it's less than it, it was before, is uh, once again, it's this mixing of theology and politics. Mm-hmm. And there's a type of reticence in Catholic theology to, uh, to mix the two. But when you actually look at Scripture, when you look at the ancient kingdom of Israel, when you look at the, the message of the prophets, their message was always intricately uh, interweaved with, with politics. And as we can see, both whether in Old Testament Israel or in today's modern state of Israel, it was never a messianic age, right? It was a political state with some less than ideal rulers, with a less than ideal political system, right? and with a lot of sin. And so yep. sometimes we tend to idealize Israel in our conception. It's like if it is still part of God's plans that we should see Israel somehow living out their calling to be light to the nations better, and certainly we can we can say that we can hope that Israel would wish would um, yeah. live out their divine calling as well as they could. But even if they don't, that doesn't change God's promises, God's faithfulness, and His election of Israel as His witness uh, chosen people. Now, some people will say that the Church becomes the Israel of God. Um, right, and what what's the weakness of that position? Well, we can go exegetically. This is a passage, I believe, from uh, the Epistle to the Galatians. Yes, yeah, Galatians six. Same. What's that? Galatians six. Yeah, Galatians six is exactly yeah. very uh, very near the end of the uh, the epistle, and there's actually a translation translation issue in uh, Galatians where he says, so Galatians 6.16, Peace and mercy be upon all who walk by this rule upon the Israel of God, says the RSV. 
So it sounds like everyone who walks by the rule of what, whatever Paul is teaching is the Israel of God. In other words, Christians or the church are the Israel of God. Yeah. But there's a little word that's missing there, and, <laughs> uh, and this is and. Yeah. And uh, if you look the at the very simple word, <laughs> very, but makes a big difference. So as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So this little word and seems to distinguish between the Israel of God, which may be the remnants of the Jewish people who have believed, and all of those, the others who walk by this rule that St. Paul is teaching, meaning all the, the disciples of Christ. And so it's by no means equating the Israel of God with the church at large. Yeah. Yeah. But it uh, seems to point to a, a certain remnant of Israel, which is very much a theme that we know from the, from all the Old Testament prophets. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing uh, distinction. And the, mm-hmm. the word, the, the Greek word there, kai, uh, is commonly translated as and. That's its most common use. Yeah. And so if it's not going to be translated in this passage as and— Peace and mercy be upon all walk by this rule and the Israel of God. There's got to be some justification for using the word even to the Israel of God. Right. So right. Is, is this something, and I know there are passages, other passages in which Kai gets translated as even, but uh, yeah. by far the overwhelming translation is and. So yeah. what's, what are they thinking here when they don't—they uh, try to have a single entity when there are two entities being mentioned. you got the people who walk by this rule that St. Paul's been right. teaching, and yeah. the Israel of God. So, yeah. so the question is, are we looking at one entity here or two? And the, right. the word, use of the word Kai would indicate, at first glance anyways, you've got two entities— yeah, indeed. And I'm looking at just a few translations in front of me, and I see that all of them except the RSV have the and. Yeah. Now, I don't have all of them, but uh, I'm looking at one, two, three, about five or six translations. Yeah. yeah. That they all have the and. So I, I can't put myself in the mind of the translators of the RSV what led to that decision. But as we know, Catholic theology is not just determined by exegesis. There's right. a whole body of, uh, of uh, theological tradition behind that. And... Um, and so I, I don't think that just this and is the sole reason for identifying uh, the Israel of God with, with the Church. We know right. that, as I said, it's deeply grounded in the teachings of the Church Fathers, and uh, this tendency towards supersessionism. In, in an attempt to elevate the fullness of faith that we believe is found in the Church, what one tends to think, or many Catholics or theologians have tend to think it's an either-or. If the Church has the fullness of truth and the fullness of salvation— then this must mean that there is really nothing of value anymore in Judaism or in the land of Israel, apart from seeing it kind of as a museum, right? Like it's the holy land, the places where Jesus walked. Mm-hmm. And uh, But an authentic Catholic approach is not either or, but both and, isn't it? So we can affirm that there is the fullness of truth in the Church, in Christ, and in her sacraments and her teachings, but at the same time that uh, it is a... A covenant that God made with the church that builds upon the covenant that uh, he established with Israel. And so we can still have gratitude and humility to recognize that we have received this from the chosen people of God. Right. And as Paul says, we are grafted into this uh, this olive tree. Yeah, yeah. And uh, 
this doesn't mean that we shouldn't present the gospel either uh, right. to the Jewish people. So well, hold it there, Andre. We'll come back and continue conversation. My guest, Dr. Andre Villeneuve, Associate Professor of Old Testament and uh, Biblical Languages at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. We're taking a look at uh, New Testament teaching on Israel. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Andre Villeneuve from Sacred Heart Major Seminary, taking a look at the biblical teaching on Israel and the land, and again, a Catholic understanding of it, going back uh, certainly to the Second Vatican Council and the uh, document Nostra Aetate, uh, which seems everybody recognizes that this is a major step forward in the Church's understanding of uh, its relationship to the Jewish people. So, does in Nostra Aetate, does it recognize then that there's an ongoing covenant relationship that God has with the Jewish people? It does. The relationship or covenant aspect is absolutely there. What Nostra Aetate is silent about is the land. Okay. It's actually very interesting. I, when I was in college, I wrote a paper on the history and development of Nostra Aetate, or the drafts that led to it. Yeah. And there was actually a massive infighting and battles behind the scenes, partly from some of the bishops from the Arab world, and there was a lot of politics involved in the drafting of this document. In fact, all of Nostra Aetate, which is now the document on uh, the relation of the Church to non-Christian religions, originally it was a document that was entirely dedicated to the Church and the Jewish people. Hmm. And because of this kind of lobby behind the scenes and the concerns that the, the document would be too political, it was somehow watered down to first to include all other religions, and then second to avoid any kind of mention of, uh, of the land. So it's kind of in an unusual, what seems to be an awkward position, in that we yeah. recognize the covenantal relationship uh, exists, and we can acknowledge that. But biblically, yeah. really, the the promise of the land is um, you, you, it's indistinguishable from the covenant, isn't it? Yes, it is, because, you know, there's something almost Gnostic about this, yeah. spiritualization of the covenant. Yeah, of that's Israel, good. That's a really good. I hadn't thought of it. point of view, right? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it does. I it mean, does feel that way. Think, uh, a covenant. Some theologians would say, "Well, yeah, the covenant is is intact, and God's faithful to His people, but there's no body to it. It's only some kind of a spiritual idea of a relationship with no, you know, tough luck, uh, Jewish people. Yeah, you're not going to have a place to to live, or you don't have any kind of land that's that's grounded in this uh, this relationship, whereas the Catholic idea tends to be sacramental, isn't it? That we believe that spirit is conveyed through matter and through, yeah. through, through the body. And so in that sense, really the idea, if you want to affirm the covenant, uh, yes, there is a spiritual covenant. The new covenant is largely spiritual, but the original covenant with Israel is um, the testimony to the, the truth and in the enduring witness of this covenant is actually the land, the presence of the people in their lands. Some I can imagine some people would be saying, "Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, no, wait a minute." The Catholic covenant is a universal covenant, and by reaffirming God's ongoing covenant with the Jewish people, 
uh, aren't we taking a step backward from the universal uh, direction of salvation history? Right. It's the same idea of the sacramentality of things. So if I transfer this analogy to, to the sacraments, okay, you need water for baptism. So nobody would say, well, wait a minute, if you insist on the, the importance of water, are you not detracting from the spiritual reality of conveying grace, uh, the sanctifying grace, or the Eucharist? Why all this focus on the, the bread and the wine? We don't really need that. We need the real presence of God, right? We're starting to sound like, like very Gnostic uh, Protestants of sorts. And so once again, it's the, the both end that, for sure, the land is not an end in itself. And you may have some some Christian Zionist movements, I know you have some Christian Zionist movements that tend to see the land as all kind of like the be-all, and all the presence of Israel in the land. And we know that the land in a certain way, in a certain ways, or Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem points towards the, the new and heavenly Jerusalem. And so it is still a point on the way. It's still a, a pointer towards the ultimate reality. Mm-hmm. But we don't dismiss the pointer for that reason, do we? Right. We still see a significance. And once again, sacramentality with a, a lowercase s, not one of the seven sacraments, but the, the, the concept of sacramentality, whereas the physical points to the spiritual. Is there... Do the, do the apostles any place use Israel as a synonym for the Church? They do not. It, it, the, the term Israel, I believe, is used around 77 times in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And you can just search it with any Bible software. Sure. And you're going to see that virtually every time Israel means Israel, it means the either the 12 tribes or eventually Israel became synonymous with the Jewish people, even though it's an, not an exact synonym because the, the Jewish people really derive from Judah, and so they're one of the 12 tribes. Right. But by the, the time of the Second Temple period, the Israel became synonymous with, with the Jewish people. So there's basically just a couple of exceptions. The one we've already discussed, the Israel of God, which seems to be a little bit ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And I think there's another one in Romans where St. Paul says, not all Israel is Israel, which seems to cast some, some doubt on the very identity of Israel. Once again, when he questions that, he's not saying, well, Israel is no longer Israel, and now all Gentile believers in Jesus are Israel. He seems to be restricting the meaning of Israel to the remnant of Israel, meaning not everybody who was born of a Jewish mother is really carrying out the full calling of Israel, but it's not enough to be circumcised in the flesh. You also have to be circumcised in the heart. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, unless I'm forgetting something, there's about these two two instances where Israel is a little bit ambiguous, but the rest of them, all of them, Israel means Israel. Yeah. It never means the church. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, because this is, a, this is a major issue in the New Testament, uh, this idea of uh, the relationship between, what is the church's relationship uh, to the Gentile world and to the Jewish people? It's, it's yeah. a major consideration for St. Paul. I mean, this is yes. this is his this is his uh, shtick. I mean, he's <laughs> this is what he's getting mm-hmm. working to get straight, and it is it is strange that um, they never use Israel as a synonym for the church. The, right. the New Testament writers. That's we have a very different perspective too, because Saint Paul, we have to remember that he not only was a Jew, but, but still is a Jew as he's writing these epistles, That's right? right. He's writing among his brothers as a Jewish believer in Jesus, who's writing 
to fellow Jewish believers in Jesus for the most part. They're trying to deal with what do we do with Gentiles who come into the church. And so sometimes you can write polemically and, and have strong points of view to, to write about his Jewish brothers and sisters or to write to them saying, well, you're not saved by the works of the Torah, of the law, but you're saved through Christ alone. And so sometimes you can be polemical against Judaism, but we have to remember he was a Jew. And so when the church became by large Gentile, they adopted, not only they adopted Paul's rhetoric, but they exacerbated it mm. and made it even more polemical. And so that's where, unfortunately, Jewish-Christian relations became very yeah. intense and even hostile uh, a few generations after St. Paul. Yeah. Uh, would the best place to, would you say the best place to, to get St. Paul's understanding of the relationship uh, of the gospel to the Jewish people would be Romans 9 through 11? Yes, I think so. That's where he's really focused on what we might call the mystery of Israel. Yeah. Because through all of Romans, basically, his point is to say that all has sin and fall short of the glory of God, both Jews and Gentiles. And at the beginning of Romans, he's going after the Gentiles, saying they're idolatry, they're, they're sinful, and moral conduct is reprehensible, but also the Jews who claim to have a, a righteousness really based on their own works. And so he's pointing both groups, both Jews and Gentiles, towards Christ. And as if he were anticipating the objection, saying, well, then it means nothing to be a Jew, then he's responding to that uh, objection in Romans 9 to 11. Yeah. He, rhetorical question, has God then rejected his people? And then all the three chapters, he's basically saying no. Yeah. And he actually says, by no means, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So he still thinks yeah. there's some, some, something about uh, Jewish identity remains important to him. Yes. Um, yes. Even as he's, he's in, even as he's seeing that the gospel is, uh, expanding its reach uh, to the Gentile world. But isn't that also, mm. wasn't that one of the purposes of uh, ancient Israel, that they were supposed to be um, established, they were a vehicle by which God and his law would reach the outside world. So... Yes, indeed. Yeah. So, so Very they, much so. From uh, Actually, as far back as the Exodus, there's already hints of that. Yeah. That uh, uh, Israel being called the kingdom of priests and holy nation. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see this witness role right there in, in the Torah, Exodus and Deuteronomy. And then it becomes even amplified in the prophets such as Isaiah, where we see Israel that's given this role of being a light to the nations. And so in many ways, you, you might say that uh, Jesus is the perfection of, of Israel, being the Messiah of Israel. He fulfills mes- Israel's messianic calling. And so that is pretty standard Catholic theology, and which is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. But once again, you can affirm the perfect carrying out of Israel's role in Jesus without completely dismissing the imperfect role that uh, the nation and people of Israel are still entrusted with. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's just it's just fascinating, and of course, <clears throat> uh, coming to the conclusion that the land uh, is that the covenantal promise of the land is still uh, uh, appropriate uh, for right. Israel, that still doesn't say that the the inhabitants of Israel 
can do whatever they want, and they don't have to be concerned about norms, you know, international norms of justice. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and so that's why, really, I think the right approach for, for Catholics and Christians is, is truly to pray for Israel, to recognize that they have a divine calling that is enduring, that is irrevocable, but at the same time that they are uh, sinners and they do not know the Messiah, like most Gentiles do not know the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And their political system is flawed and is not perfect, and they're in the midst of a very rough neighborhood, so to speak, surrounded by <laughs> largely enemies. Right. And so they really need prayers for protection, but also for them to come to the, the fullness of salvation and redemption and to truly discover their, their role to, be, to become uh, a light to the nations. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And is it, is it recognized in Catholic theology that this is kind of a developing area? Uh, of concern? It depends what kind of Catholic theology, and so you have <laughs> okay. have some theologians that recognize so and others maybe not so much. Okay. Well, Andre, thanks so much. Uh, great talking with you again, and uh, really appreciate My your work out. and your help. Dr. Andre Villeneuve, again, from Sacred Heart Major Seminary, where he teaches Old Testament and biblical languages. Uh, the theme we'll come back to, because I think this is an area of development, ongoing work. 